I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, like always, I have a fun one for you. Really pleased to welcome Joel Faulkner. Joel is the president and CEO of Area One Farms. They are an alternative asset management firm that she co-founded in 2012. They created a farmer-centric private equity model to help scale Canadian family farms and deliver great investor returns. She's raised uh, $200 million and she comes with a, a really storied background of Bain & Company, Morgan Stanley, Onyx, Stanford University. Joelle's also a Rhodes Scholar, a Fulbright Scholar, and on the list of Canada's most powerful women, and one of EY's entrepreneurial winning women. Way to make me feel very unaccomplished, Joelle. Thank you. And, <laughs> I was really uh, good at school. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, so Joelle, I mean, you don't even look old enough to have all these accomplishments. So take me back. How did this all begin? What what, what was that childhood look like that, that resulted in the, the high achiever that uh, that you've become? I grew up in London, Ontario. My parents, my dad sells alfalfa seed. My parents have a dairy farm. And that all takes a fair bit of work. Nobody's afraid to work. I have three siblings, an older brother who I've always been really close with. We've actually always been close, all four of us, but I did a lot with him, especially as a young kid, because I was 18 months younger. And then I have a sister who's a pediatric dentist, and I have a sister who's just doing her MBA. And we grew up like pretty regular, I would think. I guess because our parents run our own, their own business, that was always a real, like, visible thing. And we were exposed to it from a really young age. And we, my uh, dad especially made us really aware of how it works and, you know, what amount of debt do we have and how does that work and where do we make money and what are the expenses? And like, we had a really good idea of those things really early. I think a lot of parents are shield their kids a little bit from financial things early on and we didn't have that. So we had a, a general kind of good understanding of those things. And my brother, who was always really interested in agriculture and uh, and our farm, I hung around a lot with him, with my dad. So I got to see a lot of things that I might otherwise have been less interested in. And we, they asked for advice, probably. Advice might be the wrong thing. They asked for opinions and views on business things from almost as far back as I can remember. Like my brother decided what farm to sell and what farm to buy when he was 13. Yeah. And so like, it was a really comfortable, open discussion. Where do you think they learned that sort of behavior? Cause I agree with you that that, that level of kind of radical transparency uh, is, is extremely uncommon, but I think it's like, it makes all the sense in the world. If you want your children to understand and respect money and finance and how to build businesses and how to think about the world, you know, having that level of transparency at an early age is probably hugely uh impactful you know did, did they grow up like that because that, that's a, that's an unusual behavior no i don't think they did and i don't think they thought 
a ton about it. I think it was that if this was, if business was going to be of interest, you should probably understand it. And so if you could ask questions about it, you could probably understand the answers. I think it would have been a little more like that than kind of set out to do something. I think the big difference was a lot of, at least in how their friends would talk to them about it, which they would like tell us, is that uh, a lot of people are worried that if you explain to your kids that you like, like money, if you explain, you know, I own this and we owe this. And so the net difference is this. It's a really big number. Um, no matter what it is to a kid, like it's all a big number. And so the kid would be lazy. I think that's kind of the general the fear. Pre- yeah. I think that's the general yeah. prevailing thought is like, okay, well, if you kid knows that they can afford things, then they'll be lazy. And I don't think the two go together. And I don't think my parents ever believed that the two go together. So I think it was, I think you phrased it exactly right. Maybe if you want kids to really respect money and respect hard work that makes that money, they actually have to understand it. And I think the fear is actually the other way, that if they understand the size of those things, then they actually won't want to work, which I don't think that I don't think necessarily follows. But I certainly don't think my parents were afraid of that. We always wash cars for, you know, we. We would get, well, we'd actually always wash my dad's car because he'd pay us. We never wash my mom's car because she'd never pay us. <laughs> so, yeah. well, we, you know, but we got paid 10 bucks if we did the outside. If we did the outside and the inside, we got paid 20 bucks. And so, like, we always did that. And I think the two kind of go hand in hand. So, so you come from this farming background, entrepreneurial background, and then you go into law and biodesign. So well, talk me through, you know, those decisions because it did, I'm having a hard time following the, the, the logic. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a very linear path. No, That's clearly sure. not. No. Did the things that I was interested in doing, save and except for law, which I was never really interested in. But I, when that was it. So I did engineering undergrad and I really liked that and I was good at it. And I combined it with business undergrad and I liked that. And I was good at it. And I got a Rhodes Scholarship to go to study in England. And you have to pick something to study if you're on scholarship and going to study. And they didn't, the scholarship at the time didn't allow anybody to do an MBA. So I either had to go further in engineering, which meant a lot of lab, like bench work. And I didn't like bench-based research. Uh, or I had to pick something new. And law seemed like a thing that would be helpful generally as I went into business, but I was bad at it, like really bad. Like I got through it and I did well enough to go on to grad school, but I certainly did not excel at it. And why do you think that is? Is it because you just weren't that passionate or interested in it? Oh no. I'm I'm like just legitimately not great at reading. I'm not good at writing. Like on a dyslexia spectrum I'd be in the spectrum. But not enough that it affected, you know, high school English, not enough. that it, So I could work my way through most things. But when they handed back my first set of midterms, they said, don't worry, we see this all the time of ESL students. So I said, OK, well, do you want to give me a first language? <laughs> like, I don't think they realized that I wasn't from French speaking Canada. It was very funny. Anyway, the uh, yeah, I just it was it's never been my thing. But I liked business and I liked the variety of business. I always liked medicine, like the idea of it, the idea of kind of what you could do that would help lots of people. I really liked the engineering side. And so biodesign was kind of a beautiful mix of those things. It's a program at 
Stanford that mixes engineering with business around medical device innovation. So physical things that can help people. It's based on design thinking. It was an extremely valuable way to learn kind of design thinking, which, which for people who don't know, just means that you identify the problem first and then you build a product that really suits that problem as opposed to building a product and then trying to sell it. Um, and in this case, you do it for medicine. And in medicine, it's really, really easy to respect the limitations. Like it's a little hard to decide, well, I'm going to build like a t-shirt company and I'm going to find a way to do it where I don't need any marketing because maybe I won't be as good at marketing as all the other t-shirt companies. But it's really easy in medicine because it's like, well, I'm going to design somebody for who's in uh, cardiac failure. If you put the person more than 30 degrees incline, like if you go to lay them down, they drown in themselves at that point. So you can't do that. So like whatever this device is, it has to be put in a person when they're 30 degrees or more vertical. And so there's being able to respect those boundaries. The part that ends up being useful of it as I design this business is I was really good at saying, okay, well, if these are my restrictions and then really respecting the restrictions and trying to design within them, uh, which I ended up using. But I, I like that. I love the process. I love we had amazing access. We met with amazing physicians. Like it was, it was a really amazing thing, but it takes six to 10 years for FDA to give you a decision. And I didn't like the kind of long-term that decision was left out of my hands and it would take a long time to find out. So I, I actually like shorter cycles of business. And then I wanted to move back to Canada. So I did. And then I worked kind of a series of jobs, the last of which was with, was in philanthropy. And I was, I just did things that I thought would be interesting. And I had a bit of trouble finding that. And then I wanted to start my own business and I looked at a bunch of different things. And one of the things was this, and this was really because my brother wanted to buy some land in Manitoba or Saskatchewan that was less expensive than where we were. And so I got really interested in kind of who is buying and how to like investment in the space was starting to increase and why was that and how is it sold? And if you actually got at the time, Canada had almost no it's called institutional investors in farmland, but if you actually got that, could you do it in a way that would make it better for farmers? Because the traditional method of investing, I thought would make it worse for farmers. I thought maybe there's a better way we can draw that line if we kind of get to start from scratch, which you don't get to in many industries. So your your background in, in kind of engineering, biodesign, you know, I, I, I too have a background in science, right? So let's collectively say it's, it's, it's you know, science and engineering. How much of an impact do you think that has overall on one's ability to build businesses? Because it's not as common, right? I think that most most of these entrepreneurs come from, you know, kind of the traditional business background. I really think it's been a huge advantage for me that my brain distills data through scientific method as opposed to the less rigid way, potentially, of, of, of traditional business uh, brains. I think that... I think engineering and science, it made me really good at math. Like that is the first major advantage. The ability to have a feel for numbers is unusual and uh, super helpful. And so I can look at things and kind of understand in the ballpark what 
it's going to mean from a numbers perspective. And that's just very efficient, like amongst everything else. That is a super, and I think that it does it better than business school and it does it better than even a lot of the financial trades. Of the schooling that I did, I was the best at engineering. And I think it's probably because in addition to being good at what they were teaching me, actually a lot of how I thought matched up really well with that discipline. And so I don't know if it's exactly like it's what it taught me or it's that was kind of the best structure for me, things I like, but it's helpful. I can follow through processes. I can understand like, you know, what happens first, what happens second. I can picture how things get done. I can understand new businesses and I can understand the pieces of it that I don't understand. I think that's probably the help, like one of the very helpful things is like within a business, I can actually say, well, this makes sense to me in that piece. Like I'm, I'm just not going to understand it. It'll be a while. But yeah, I think, I think being interested in data, which I think the science and engineering side is, is probably really helpful for lots of people to lots of things. Yeah, totally. And I'm a huge believer, you know, that for every action is equal and opposite reaction. And what makes someone great at all the things that you're talking about, I too am on a dyslexic scale. And I've met a lot of really successful people that also are. And I've tried to figure out what it is about, you know, having that, that, that opposite reaction of having something so glaringly weak that creates such strong, you know, other components in one's, in one's mind. Like, do you have any theories around dyslexia and, and, and the role that it played? Like one, one of my theories as an example is that I had to compensate uh, at times and figure out other ways of being creative to, you know, overcome some of the things that I was really weak at because of, because of this dyslexia that I had. I don't, but I also like on the scale, I wouldn't be very far along it. Like I made it through high school and university, both business school and engineering at or near the top of the class before anybody recognized that there would be any problem. Right. So the only time that the issue was identified, other than me saying I'm not good at writing essays, they take me a long time, was at Oxford in law there, which is probably one of the most like intensively reading, writing, having programs you can be in. So I don't because I don't know that like I don't in the regular world of most people, I don't think it ever would have been raised as an issue. I don't think it like I think I'm really on a low edge of it. But to your other side, diversity of thought is probably pretty helpful. And as you think of what people are doing and what makes somebody successful, I would think that uh, unique, informed ways of looking at things is probably pretty helpful. And if there's not a lot of people that fit into the dyslexic category, and probably they have a slightly different way of looking at things than people who don't, because they've always had to, and maybe that's disadvantaged in one way, and maybe it's an advantage in another because it's a unique perspective. That would be my best guess is that like unique perspective is actually pretty helpful. So you, you talked about this nonlinear path. Now, I'm a huge believer in the massive advantages that come from being exposed to numerous things uh, and kind of following passion. Quite frankly, I think a lot of people are told that you got What's your opinion on, you know, there's a lot of people right now that are probably listening to this that don't know what they want to do 
And I've always told people like, that's okay. Just find things that interest you and, and start doing something that interests you. But that's not the most traditional advice, right? Like, like university tells you X. I would imagine that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. What's your opinion on that? I was really unable to stick with things that I didn't like. Like I held a lot of jobs for like, you know, between three weeks and three months, which nobody would say is a good idea. Okay. Zero people. But I just wasn't, I just didn't, couldn't quite do it, which makes it really easy to do something else. I think for sure people should optimize for delight would be my view. Like, I think, I don't think it's that you have to have a passion exactly for the industry you're in. I actually think that matters way less. But I think the practical day to day, like do something you like doing because it is going to take a lot of work to be successful at anything. And that's the easiest way to want to put in the work, like just have the energy for it. And then I don't think linear paths are super necessary, clearly. And I don't think that like the disingenuous approach, like I think people are pretty smart. I think they can see that. Like I've, I've had that question from people who are applying say for Rhodes, like, you know, they want to apply for the scholarship and then they want to pick a discipline that some guidance counselor told them to pick for grad school. I'll say like, why? Like, why do you, and their answers are weak because they don't actually have a real answer to why. And it, and I said like, you're going to have nine people around a table who aren't stupid. Don't you think they'll pick up on the fact that you're not actually that interested? But I always think that's funny. Like, if you get to pick, if you are fortunate to be in a position where you have options, which not everybody is for a host of reasons, but if you are in that position, pick something that will get as close to delighting you as possible. That's part one. And part two is I'm probably the wrong person to take career advice from because I didn't have a strong, like I had a lot of awards. I did extremely well at school and I really liked school, but uh, I didn't actually have much of a career before this. So if you are looking to build a career in a way that you can see from the outset, probably following my advice is not a good idea because I didn't do that. And I don't think I could have. Like I don't I don't think those options were necessarily going to be open to me based on how I acted with them. If you knew you wanted to ultimately start a business, what was it about you know, working with? I mean, there's some pretty impressive names. And, and, and I guess what, what, what did you learn through those, uh, those roles that, that, that have helped you build you know, Area One? Jobs that I had at Great Names were all summer jobs. And that just puts in context that like it wasn't that I, I couldn't have learned that much there because I wasn't there for very long. Uh, but I gained great mentors. I gained good friends. I gained, I had a better sense of the things that I did like and things I didn't like just about work in general. And I got to see how other people ran places and what I ultimately would want to run mine like. And I loved a lot of those jobs. They trade well, like just like you say, a lot of people see the names and they don't see that I was only there for four months. Or uh, I've had a lot of instances where even the people I worked with, like afterwards, you know, maybe a year later, they remember you were a summer student, but maybe 10 years later, they don't. They think they worked with you for a couple of years. And that really helps. It opens doors and you get to meet people. And there's a lot of times where that's super helpful. And then just the professionalism in a bunch of those places is I'm not as, I'm probably a little more practical and a little less professional by nature. And so the professionalism that I got to see there is helpful when I need it. So 
you know, you're now seven years into building Area One. I'm almost 10. Oh, I thought it was 2014. No, I started, yeah, but it took a while to figure out. So I started in 2011, okay. uh, but I started officially in 2012. We are getting very close to 10. So what are the things, looking back, that you underestimated? And, and what, oh, what are all the of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you actually knew how terrible the first couple of years would be. Oh, I, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, you'd never do it. Like, there's no yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. There's that thing they say with startups, the valley of tears or the the drop of sorrows or something. There's like, you know, things look really fun and they're really good in the first couple of years and you're getting traction and you're this and you're that. And then, like, everybody's moved on with their lives and careers and you're stuck in this, you know, shitty little office. Am I allowed to say that on here? Oh, yeah. yeah okay, so, <laughs> so you're stuck in this, like, little office and you have, a couple people around and you have too much work for those people and you're not doing a good enough job because you haven't hired enough expertise and growth is not clear at that point and the track record isn't built enough to allow growth to be clear like there's no certainty there's no stability and there has been a ton of work for i don't know three years five years seven years like there's a long period in there and when that starts turning around it's pretty nice like i'm finally getting to the point where i'm building out the team that I want that lets us do a whole bunch of extra things for the farmers that we work with. But I didn't have those at the beginning. And at the beginning, I didn't know I would need an accountant. Like I just didn't know, didn't think about it. Didn't work places long enough to know that I would need audited statements. And that meant I need an accountant. And that meant I had to pay an accountant. Like there was, so I just kind of thought I could do it all myself, which, which uh, meant I could get, a deal done because I could get fees that didn't actually cover my costs, but I didn't know that at the time. So naivety is a little bit of bliss. And if I could, like, it's kind of the same with my life generally, but if I could give younger Joelle a little bit of advice, which older Joelle still finds hard to take, it's like, if you know your life would work out in the end, you actually wouldn't worry about it in between, right? Like if you know that in 10 years, you're going to be happy in X, Y, and Z, you don't actually have to worry about X, Y, and Z. And what I didn't know at the time is it might, what you're happy with will actually also shift enough over time that you will be happy with whatever the thing is for the most part, like for most people, I think. So like on the business side, I never intended to build a business that would be giant. I just wanted one that meant I didn't have to work for somebody else. And I had a little bit of control over my time, not meaning I didn't have a lot of work, but that I could pick to some extent when I had to do that work and I could plan my own life. Cause I really didn't like, I didn't like the uncertainty of having to cancel plans was really the piece I didn't like from prior jobs. So I could make plans and I could keep those plans because I knew I could plan my work around it. it was kind of the goal. If I knew now that it would have actually worked, I might've, I might've managed how I hired and stuff a little differently to bring in some expertise earlier that would have meant I could have avoided some mistakes, but I didn't know that either yet. I love this idea of happiness. You know, a lot of people don't talk about that enough. How much of your decision making is rooted in the desire for happiness? Does it play a role in whether you're going to decide to raise another fund or, you know, grow bigger or stay the same or, you know, like how, how much does that guide your, your path? Like all of it. Yeah. And I don't know that, like I asked, uh, mentor at some point 
not that long ago, maybe three months ago, six months ago. Like, why do people grow businesses? If you have one that's actually making you the income that you would need to live on. So you're not worried about stability or certainty. You can keep people employed. Like, you can kind of keep the basics running. So why would you grow? And uh, he mailed me the book, A Man's Search for Meaning. The first, like, two-thirds, maybe three-quarters, is the experience of a guy in a concentration camp. And it's not like a emotional experience. It's just his observations. He's a psychiatrist, and he is reflecting on being in a concentration camp and how people acted and how odd that action is, like like how quickly you kind of adapt to your surroundings and what helped people survive. So you have really terrible circumstances, and there are some people who survive, and what helps them survive. And then the last, I think he might even call it a postscript, but the last like third or quarter of the book is part two, and he talks about his psychological theory, which is logotherapy, which is which is what people live for, kind of. It's that internal motivation. It's what drives not necessarily in the moment happiness, but meaning. What drives like overall kind of satisfaction with your life. And there's a there's a bunch of things. And one of the things that it explains like really nicely is if you find the responsibilities that all that you feel like are specifically yours. Either they are only yours or you are specifically kind of the one that is meant to do them. So like loving another person, taking care of another person, taking care of workers, providing employment. Like there can be a whole bunch of things. And for whatever reason, you feel like those are yours. Uh, That's actually what creates kind of genuine, stable happiness, which in this context, like from what I can tell, a lot of people grow businesses because of ego. They want to be more, they want to have more, or they want to prove themselves. Like there is, there is a shocking number of very insecure overachievers, people who to the very end of their life, no matter how successful they are, they're extremely insecure. And so they're proving a lot of things. And I think, I think I do okay on the self-confidence side. And so mine is really about what makes sense for this business So for the particular thing that I'm trying to build, what makes sense in terms of growth? And do I want to do that? Do I want to take on that extra responsibility and, and extra work and, and extra opportunity? And if I do, how do I build that out in a way so that I will still be happy? Do you think that that insecurity that you speak about, if it's driving results, do you think it's ultimately still bad? I don't know that I think it's like something we should be judgmental about, but I don't think it would be a fun thing to live with. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And most successful, like most extremely or overly successful people, I think there's a lot of motivation that is mostly from a dysfunctional source, right? Like I don't think that most people who are, who are very, very successful is because of like something that's actually normal and good. Like it, like there is some piece to their history or their makeup or something that drives that. Save it. Like there's some people who are, who are geniuses, right? Like maybe they're, they're wizards. They can create some kind of technology that nobody else can see. There's pharmacists, the pharmacy like invention in COVID that you can, you know, I don't know if you listen to the woman who created the Pfizer technology, but like, I mean, you listen to that and you're like, oh, you might just be a genius. 
Like you might have, you might be a very functional person who is also just a genius. But, but I think for lots of people, it's driven from an odd place. I think insecurity might be one of those. It just doesn't happen to be mine. Yeah, no, I think, I think the chip on the shoulder and the proving yourself uh, is a very, very common trait amongst successful people. You know, I, I've always said that the desire for success is not as strong of a motivator as the fear of, of failure. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Fear is a far bigger motivator than desire. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, and maybe not mentally healthy, but uh, I think it's just the truth. Well, and it comes, like all different people get theirs from different, that fear can come from all different places. Insecurity is one of them, but there's lots of other places. Yeah. So, Joel, before I let you go, I just, you know, one, one other question is, you know, wh- wh- where are you headed with Area One? Uh, you know, what's what's the next step, the next evolution of uh, of, of you and, and your journey? So we're growing. We we raise in what's called funds. So it's a pool of money that then we invest in farms. And so we're just closing our fourth fund uh, at the moment and investing that. And that means we'll work with kind of three to four new farmers a year in the next couple of years. And I'm trying to build out the operations side. Like I'm trying to actually make our kind of head office expertise more valuable and able to help farmers build their businesses really successfully, uh, which is would be new for us. Like we've always been good at helping on the finance side, but I'd actually like to be able to help on the business side. There's kind of further processing that that has interested me. But we need to find the right farmers who are doing some of that. So maybe they're cleaning for seed or maybe they're processing their crop in some way. And I'm interested in that. And hopefully we'll find farms that, that are doing some of that that want to expand it that we can work with. And then we'll see, we'll see where that goes. And that means in kind of two or three years, I face that same decision of, you know, do we grow again? But I don't face it for a little bit. Great. Well, well th- thank you so much for, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, and for those that would like to, you know, kind of follow along in your journey, what's the best way that they can keep in touch with you or watch, you know, your continued journey? Our website would have lots of things of ours and the contact email there actually does go through. So, so we receive those. So any, anything there is, is totally works. And that's area one farms at, oh, com. That's how those work, I think. Area1farms.ca. Okay, perfect. Well, again, thank you so much, Joelle. Until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.